I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. I sometimes feel like I now truly understand the Wyerton Willie experience. As COVID restrictions ease and more businesses open up, I think I feel like how our famous groundhog might, emerging from my hole, being surrounded by others outside my family for the first time in a while. It feels a little awkward and it feels a little scary. It's confusing, for sure disorienting. The COVID virus continues to circulate, producing fewer cases than the day before, yet we have no vaccine and there is the specter of a second wave. In an effort to better understand our situation, we might track COVID dashboards locally and globally. We may monitor market performance, spending indicators. We may watch leaders' daily press conferences. We engage in sense-making on a daily basis and others still are also trying to predict what this all means what it means for business, behavior, foreign policy, in an effort to understand and maybe even try to win the COVID piece. Are we punching up fog? Is this normal, in fact, new? Has the worst yet to come? Are humans the best or are we just like the worst? To sort out through some of that, today I'm joined by Dan Gardner. Dan is the New York Times bestselling author of books about psychology and decision-making and a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Thanks for joining me, Dan. Hi, Jody. As I was just mentioning, we've gone from this period where where our behavior was pretty uniform. Um, we were all staying home as much as possible, limiting you know the number of uh, interactions outside the home, physical distancing, all those types of things. Um, but now, you know, there's this sort of plurality of behavior. And it's, you know, I think tied to a plurality of risk assessment um, that's being shaped by individuals' preferences and their priorities. Um, how do we think about that? You know, what is the psychology between making um, decisions uh, about risk and how should we think about other people's decisions when they're different than ours? Oh boy! Um, in in fifteen seconds or less, um, <laughs> that's a very big set of questions. Um, you know what? Let me start by talking about something that uh, this is my habit. I'm going to talk about something that apparently has absolutely nothing to do with what you've just raised, but it has everything to do with what you've just raised. Uh, I'm going to talk about chimpanzees. As we all know, scientists study the behavior of chimpanzees in the wild. How do they do that? Um, if you go into the wild and you meet a troop of chimpanzees uh, and you say to the chimpanzees, don't mind me, go about your business so I can study you, uh, it will not work. In fact, the chimpanzees will hoot and holler in alarm because, of course, you are a strange new creature and you are a potential threat. Um, so how do scientists uh, like Jane Goodall actually study chimpanzees and their behavior in the wild? The answer is that they go back over and over and over and over again and gradually over time. The chimpanzees express less alarm at the presence of the scientist until they get to the point where the chimpanzees completely ignore the scientist. And the reason why I'm telling you this charming story um, is that it relates perfectly to us because uh, we are mammals. <laughs> and what's going on in the chimpanzee's brain goes on in our brains as well. This is one of the most basic risk perception, perception mechanisms there is. It is familiarity. Something new, something completely not understood, uncertain, is inherently alarming. Something radically familiar, something that you encounter day after day after day without bad consequence 
is safe. That's our profound, deep intuition. Now, that's the insight from the risk psychology. Let's map this on to our experience with COVID. You go back to February or March, wow, what a crazy weird time that was, right? There's this strange new virus. At one point, it didn't even have a name. We don't know what it does. The scientists are emphasizing how much they don't know about this. Uh, and then we're told there's a pandemic. A lot of people had never even heard the word before. Uh, and then we're told we have to engage in lockdown. If you've heard the term lockdown before, it was only in the context of prisons. Um, and suddenly you're doing it. Um, we're engaged in, you know, if you're in public, you're wearing a mask, you're staying away from people six feet away. You're engaged. It's, it's a crazy time. And so if you think about that in the context of that risk perception psychology I mentioned, what that says is your risk perception is going to be off the charts. This is just this is just so radically unknown. Uh, it's so and, new. It's so utterly new. Nothing like it has ever happened before, at least in your experience. So the risk perception is off the charts. That's number one. Here's another really basic risk perception mechanism. We are a social animal. When we make judgments, we constantly look over our left shoulder, look over our right shoulder and say, what do other people think about this? And so, if you, again, if you go back to February and March, what other people were thinking was, wow, this is crazy. This is nuts. And so, of course, they were looking over their shoulders and realizing that other people, too, were finding this terrifying. And so that further amplified that sense of threat. Well, the reason why I mention this is going forward, and I think we're starting to see it now, and I think we're going to see it increasingly, you start to see the flip side of the same mechanisms. The first time when you go to Loblaws, I'm going to speak from personal experience here. Uh, I'm out here in Canada. I go to the Canada Loblaws. And for the first time, I have to go and stand in a line and stand six feet away from other people. And I'm wearing a mask and they're wearing masks. And we're all trying not to make eye contact because this is all so weird. Maybe the um, virus is, you know, transmitted by looking at each other. <laughs> exactly. It's very, very weird, right? We don't, need, we don't know what the social norms are. We don't know how we're supposed to behave. This is all so weird. But then you go and you do it. You get your little groceries and you rush home and you hide in your, in your hole. But then the next day or however many days down the road, you go and you do it again and nothing bad happens. And then you do it again and nothing bad happens. And you do it again and nothing bad happens. And guess what? You are now the chimpanzee who is encountering the scientist repeatedly. What does your psychology tell you? I've encountered this thing over and over and over again, and nothing bad has happened. Therefore, there is no threat. The sense of intuitive threat steadily diminishes and simultaneously what else are you doing you're looking over your left shoulder you're looking over your right shoulder you are seeing other people and they too are getting more and more calm and relaxed oh this really isn't a big deal this is no problem right we're not seeing people dropping dead in the streets things are perfectly normal well there's sort of it's a new normal that we're into there's a new routine and we see this sort of relaxation. There's this general perception, and it's, not, and, it's, and it's not uniform by any stretch, but there is, a, I think, an increasing perception that somehow, vaguely, we're sort of over the hump. It may not quite be over, but we're past the worst of it. Uh, we can relax. We can open up. Um, and where is that coming from? Is that coming from a careful statistical analysis? Is that coming from the virologists? Is it coming from the epidemiologists? No. It's coming from our psychology. 
And it is a lousy source of analysis for the current problem. Um, in particular, I mean, some of the worst examples of this you see in Texas and Arizona, for example, their numbers never even, they never even flatten the curve. Their numbers are just going up and up and up. And then they said, well, there's just this sense that, oh, it's over. We can open up now. Why? Based on what? Well, it's based on psychology. You've established a new normal. You've, you're feeling more relaxed. You can let down your guard. And I'm afraid what we're doing is we're behaving in a bit of an irrational fashion. Uh, we're engaging. Some of the opening up can be is defensible. It, it certainly is defensible. There are good arguments for and against, and these are difficult balances to find. But I'm, I'm convinced that there is a psychological mechanism at work now, which is causing people to lower their guard, which is a big reason why when I go to Loblaws today, how many people do I see wearing masks? Not many. And, and of course, because again, because we're social uh, social animals, if you go to Loblaws and you see very, very few people wearing masks and you're wearing a mask, you will feel a little bit odd. And so you'll start to sense maybe it's just not that important. Maybe I should just leave the mask in the car. And so this this is how this is how these things gradually evolve. And I'm afraid we're 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 starting to make mistakes. We're setting ourselves up for mistakes. Um, and uh, and I think we have to we have to act proactively now. In fact, I think governments and other institutions have to proactively uh, work now to address some of these trends. Yeah, and I feel a little bit so 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 that's. That's very interesting to me. And it does give context to, you know, as you say, when, when you go to the grocery store and it actually gives really great context if you are still in that group who is only grocery shopping once a week, because it's so strange, like, like the, 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 the difference in the experience, um, is, you know, a bit shocking and it can be a little overwhelming. What I struggle with right now too, is that, um, I don't, it's unclear to me what we're working towards. And what I mean by that is, you know, we hear about Australia and New Zealand, and, and of course, you know, New Zealand just recently had some challenges uh, related to international travel, but, you know, they have gotten to zero. It's actually unclear to me what we're doing in Canada or even by jurisdiction. Are, are we actually working towards zero cases, like eradication of the virus? Or are we managing to hospital capacity or to PPE capacity? Like for me, and who knows, maybe this is just a little psychological lie I'm telling myself, but I feel like I would be a lot, I would make better choices if I understood what we were actually working towards. That's a terrific point. I absolutely agree. We, we do not have clarity on the goal. Uh, we do not have clarity. Um, well, let me back up. Uh, in the early parts of the pandemic, uh, I cut uh, authorities an enormous amount of slack because they were dealing with an absolutely unprecedented situation. It was extraordinarily difficult. Um, and, and I think, frankly, in general, they handled it pretty darn well, given how extraordinarily difficult it was. I think increasingly we're dropping the ball because of this lack of clarity, and you're absolutely right, lack of clarity in the goal, what exactly are we trying to achieve, uh, and, 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 and other aspects of it. Um, so it, I think now if you did a survey, and, and here I'm, I'm, I'm simply guessing, but uh, I think that if you did a survey and you asked people, for example, about wearing masks, ask Canadians, should you wear a mask? Why should you wear a mask? I think you would get 
a, a mess of answers. I think people would have scattered thoughts on that like crazy because the messages that they're hearing from authorities are scattered. This this is not, by the way, the earlier controversy about you know the the public health authorities having switched their position from no, don't wear a mask to yes, wear a mask. That was understandable. Right now, I think there is a complete lack of clarity in, in communications about uh, should you wear a mask? Under what circumstances should you wear a mask? And why should you wear a mask? Um, in, the, in, in those cases where I see people discussing wearing a mask, I think you almost always hear people talk about their own personal risk. Um, so I'm, for example, they say I'm a 35 year old healthy person. My risk from this virus is minimal. So I'm not going to wear a mask. Um, but first that makes of all, no sense. Masks are about preventing yourself from transmitting the virus. Right. right. <laughs> it doesn't it, do anything it, to protect you. <laughs> it, 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 exactly. It, and, and, and this is what I mean by the lack of clarity. Um, because there are different ways of looking at masks and people are hearing different messages and of course, naturally, people start with you know what they're most interested in, which is themselves and their own safety. Um, but but of course, the, from a public health perspective, um, we should have a simple, clear message. You know, do we want? First of all, I don't even know. Do we do do public officials do our duly constituted authorities want the public to be wearing masks in public? And if so, what percentage of the population? would they see as a sign of success if, if that percentage were wearing masks? I don't even know if that's been established. And if it is established, and, and, and I think it should be, <laughs> and it should be a very clear goal, um, once that's established, then we can say, well, what should, how should we go about doing it? Well, there, the only debate I'm hearing now is between mandatory and non-mandatory, which is a completely misguided way of approaching the problem. Um, for one thing, I, I actually don't think mandatory is terribly helpful because that gets people's backs up. That says, basically, we're forcing you to do something. We're, we're, we're putting a muzzle on you, as some people will put it. Um, whereas we actually, if we want to get the population as a whole, but to by and large wear masks in public, we could very easily do that by appealing to their pro-social natures with strong communications. You know, if you tell the average Canadian, if you say to them, do you want to be the person who transmits the virus to another person who transmits the virus to another person who transmits the virus to a person who is being treated for cancer and therefore has a suppressed immune system and therefore dies from this virus? Do you want that responsibility? Uh, the average Canadian will say absolutely not. And if you say there's a very simple way for you to reduce that probable outcome, and that's to wear a mask in public. Uh, you could put that, turn that into a, a, a very simple, clear, powerful uh, uh, communication, and that would change behavior. But I'm not seeing that in the communications, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure either. And the interesting, the other interesting thing about the mass discussion is, is so so. You know, we just spoke about how a goal could kind of ground our behavior. But principles can also kind of ground our behavior. And one of the principles we kept hearing about was, you know, respecting the science and, you know, following the advice of experts. But it would seem like the studies are pretty clear that masks are quite effective at preventing transmission, particularly when you're indoors and you cannot maintain physical distancing. So you would expect if that principle we're still kind of holding true 
yep. then, you know, we would see much clearer communication about mm-hmm. really you got to wear a mask. Right. And, 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 and also there's the factor of cost. I put it even, even in simpler terms. Um, even if we only had weak evidence that masks uh, are effective, and I think the evidence is stronger than that, but even if we only had weak evidence, what's the cost? Uh, if, if the cost of the intervention is very minimal, and it is, um, mostly it's discomfort and you feel a little goofy wearing a mask next to other people. Um, if the cost of the intervention is that low, why wouldn't you do it? In, in fact, the onus should probably shift. And, and, and unless you can put some sort of uh, uh, affirmative action uh, argument against the policy, um, then we should go ahead and do it. Um, that's interesting. It brings up another aspect, and it's um, so. And this will draw upon my Loblaws experience. So you know, very scientific. <laughs> um, but you know, um, uh, some of the uh, people working at the Loblaws that I went to um, weren't wearing masks, and um, and they weren't uh, behind a plastic shield either. And you know, I I used to work at a grocery store um, and, you know, I wore a blue polyester bow tie, which felt awful. But, you know, I think, you know, there's a big difference between wearing a blue polyester bow tie and wearing a mask for eight hours. So I did try and like bring some empathy to it. Like here's, you know, this person is, I mean, now probably making, you know, minimum wage now that there's no longer a danger pay um, top up. And, you know, maybe eight hours of mask wearing, like that could be very uncomfortable and particularly if you're doing physical activity. So I'm not sure what to think though, to be honest. I, 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 as you can tell, I'm like a dog chasing my tail on this. (laughs) (laughs) No. And I mean, that's an absolutely fair point. Um, I would suggest that employers, Look, if you think that this is, and you should, if you think that the situation is serious enough that you have in place all of these safety measures, which are very expensive, then uh, perhaps you should uh, pay your employees a little premium for uh, putting up with the discomfort of wearing a mask for eight eight hours in a shift. Or Uh, more breaks, right? More breaks. Or or more breaks or, or something. There should be some some acknowledgement of the fact that you are putting an extra burden on your employees that was not there previously. Um, and there should also be recognition, and this this goes back to the piece in general. Um, at the beginning, you know, I mentioned our, our, our social natures, our profoundly social natures. Um, look, these are, these are public spaces in a sense. Uh, these are public spaces and people are looking at other people. Um, if you've, you know, if you've ever gone to... Uh, uh, a dinner party or a cocktail party or a, a, a whatever, and and you have been either overdressed or underdressed, you know, I'm sure you've never done that, but I have. Uh, <laughs> and I can tell you it's really painful. <laughs> it's, right. It really doesn't feel good. That's our social natures at work. And that's exactly what we're going to see with mask wearing. And what you're going to see is tipping points. Basically, if enough of the population starts to reduce mask wearing, you're going to see a tip to the point where the people who are sort of on the fence, they're all going to fall off the fence in one direction. Conversely, that tipping point could work in the, the other direction. If we can get mask wearing above a certain level, you will see it start to cascade in favor of mask wearing. Well, if that's true, then it should also follow that if I'm, for example, I don't want to pick on any particular corporation, I'll say a grocery store, 
uh, owner, uh, if I owned a grocery store, it would be a pro-social thing for me to do to say to my employees, for your own safety and to encourage uh, others to wear masks, I'm going to make it mandatory for my employees and I'm also going to compensate you for the discomfort. That would be a very pro-social step. I like that. Okay, so we've solved that whole problem now. So amazing. Okay, so at, now going back to, you know, I mean, look, I, I can pick on any example, Florida beaches, Trinity, Bellwoods, you know, Parliament Hill, like whatever it is, you know, when when you observe people um, either not wearing masks or or not physical distancing is is part of the of is part of the explanation around our reactions on social media looking at pictures of people in Trinity Bellwoods is part of it because we're not feeling the same social psychology because we're not in the park. So going back to your chimpanzee, you know, example, is it because we see this behavior lately? Like, is that behavior the first time Jane Goodall shows up and we're not at the inoculation phase? Is that why we feel more judgmental on social media than, than we would if we were actually in the park? Yeah, absolutely. There's no cost. Your uh, social media, you're sitting at home in your in your little box uh, and, and feeling and feeling very righteous. <laughs> so it, it's uh, uh, it's it's a terrific place to be sitting on your perch and, and judging humanity as it goes about its business. Um, but that being said, you know, one of the things about social media is it, well, actually, this isn't just social media. This is media at large. Um, and again, it goes to basic human behavior. Um, we notice the rule breakers, the transgressors, the norm violators, and we point fingers at them and we shout and denounce them for very good reasons. Um, that's, that's part again, part of our pro-social natures uh, because we're trying to establish those norms. But that can also mean that because we pay so much attention to the violators of the rules, that we're ignoring the people who are not violating the rules, because, of course, that's just expected. And what I saw over and over and over again, uh, particularly on social media, but as I say, also in mainstream news media, is that we would zero in on those instances in which clearly people were breaking the physical distancing rules. Um and nobody said a word about the fact that we had millions and millions and millions of people who are actually following those rules. In fact, one of the things I find extraordinary about this time period, and I'm sure historians will remark upon it, we talk about our societies being, oh, low trust. Trust is in decline. Um, we've heard this over and over again. Do you realize how absolutely amazing it is that millions and millions and millions of people just suddenly cooperated? They turned on a dime and they were told, hey, there's this strange new threat. And to get through this, uh, we're all going to need to engage in this weird new set of behaviors. And we did. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, that's a pretty positive thing. Nobody actually commented on that. <laughs> you know, I think we should. We should celebrate that fact. We we need to celebrate all, all the compliance. It's... Um... It's a little bit like a politician who goes to an event and spends all night only talking to the people who doubt their leadership and totally ignores all the supporters. You're like, yeah, yeah no, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some of this uh, is also tied, like, so, so, so the risk perception is a is a little bit about right sizing the risk. So, so we can all agree 
you know, like even, you know, and not to pick on them, like, you know, I'll say the Florida beachgoers or, or whoever, anyone who's not physically, physical distancing, not wearing a mask. It's also a little bit because we just perceive the risk differently. And you wrote about, uh, and I love tennis, so of course it catches my attention. You know, you wrote about the All England, you know, tennis club and how they had pandemic, you know, risk uh, covered. And therefore, you know, they have um, not suffered any financial losses um, uh, uh, because of COVID. So not only did they sort of right-size the risk, like they understood what a, th- you know, how how a pandemic or a virus, I should say, how a virus could shut down the fortnight. They also, um, they also took active steps to do something about that. Yep. So, you know, what are, like, are there tools that we can do that, that, that or steps we can take, tools we can use where we can be better at, you know, right-sizing the risk and then actually taking appropriate steps in response? Uh, this is the $64,000 question. And and to understand it, we have to start, again, some, some very basic uh, mechanisms about risk, risk perception and responses to risk. Um, basically, we are myopic. Uh, uh, temporally myopic is the phrase I would use. We don't think long-term, either towards the past or towards the future. Um, and so... Uh, if something has never happened, we'll tend to over-discount that risk. Um, if something just recently happened, we will tend to exaggerate that risk. Um, and so, uh, you know, after 9-11, what's going to happen next? Well, of course, there will be a series of catastrophic terrorist attacks. Why do you think that? Because my psychology tells me that's why. Um, and, and so after this pandemic, I suspect that one of the risks that we will be very well prepared for is pandemics, <laughs> at least for a little while. Um, but the problem with that temporal myopia um, is that precisely that it doesn't last. So we'll be well prepared for a pandemic uh, in the immediate future following this crisis. Um, but that sense of threat will fade because that's how the psychology works. And when the sense of threat fades, unfortunately, um, that means there's no longer a political impetus to deal with the risk even if the risk is perfectly well understood by epidemiologists and virologists, and they're all jumping up and down and saying, hey, this thing is serious, we've got to pay, pay attention to it. Um, so that's the great conundrum that we all have to deal with. Uh, and you can see this, this playing out over and over and over again in policy fields all over. Um, we swing from panic to indifference, and we find it very, very difficult to, to maintain a sweet spot between those two extremes. Um, the All England Tennis Club, Wimbledon, is a really, really interesting example because basically what happened is after uh, SARS, when, of course, we all had our wake-up call uh, and we started listening to epidemiologists and we started to realize that a pandemic was essentially inevitable, a very low probability risk each year. But, of course, if it's low probability each year, it is literally just a matter of time. Um, and so after SARS, uh, Wimbledon basically said, hey, boy, if we if we have a pandemic, that's going to ruin our tournament and destroy our finances. So they added pandemic uh, insurance to their insurance coverage. 
terrific. Um, what did governments around the world do? Well, they did lots. They did. They had all sorts of studies, good studies. There were lots of uh, changes made, lots of new uh, institutions, you know, uh, stockpiles, all sorts of good things. But time passes, memory fades, and the psychology that tells you intuitively, yes, this is a real threat and you have to be prepared, fades away. And when that fades away, of course, if the stockpile goes out of date, do you restock it? Um, if you're having cutbacks and you've got this agency or this institution that doesn't seem to have done anything in years, maybe you could just get rid of that and save a few bucks. That all starts to make sense, particularly because you have no external group that is shouting, no, 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 we've really actually got to be prepared for this risk. So why organizations drop their coverage, uh, their protections, their mitigations against these sorts of risks really isn't a, a, a mystery. It's pretty darn clear. The more interesting question is why some organizations do not uh, and why they actually manage to uh, be prepared. And I suspect, I, I haven't actually been able to confirm this, but I suspect a big reason why Wimbledon was able to be in the position it was is that after 2003, they didn't take out a separate policy for insurance against pandemic risk, which had to be renewed each year. What they did instead was they added pandemic coverage to their general insurance policy, which simply, of course, got rolled over year after year after year. In other words, year after year after year, they were not confronted with the question, do we want to continue paying money to cover ourselves for this risk? They used, in effect, status quo bias, inertia, in their favor. So what I would suggest we learn from that, story, and there are many other examples like that, what we should be doing is when we say to ourselves, okay, we've had this crisis, we know that this crisis will come again at some undetermined time in the future. We know we have to be prepared. We also know that as time passes, people will not feel that they have to be prepared and they're going to want to save money and they're going to get rid of the preparations. So how do we protect the, the, the preparedness? And we have to look at mechanisms that create automatic funding, automatic restocking of stockpiles, things that don't require humans to look at the problem and make a decision and say, okay, we should pay this money to be prepared because down the road, some knucklehead is going to get rid of it. So there's a few interesting things there. The, so one thing about the Wimbledon example that stands out uh, for me, so very interesting point that, that you made about, you know, it's just kind of rolling over and it has inertia on its side. But I think it's also just, you know, from a business point of view, you know, and when I sit around board tables, I think it's an easier decision for the All England Club because they have so much of their revenue tied up in a two-week period. So, yes. so, so, so it's easier to focus in on it. What, what I often, you know, what I've been reflecting on in terms of this pandemic, we did have PPE stockpiles and we did have ventilator yep. stockpiles. You know, some of them went out of date. There was some destroying, but, you know, like all these are, are sort of small facts compared to the larger fact that, that we did maintain stockpiles. Mm -hmm. But our stockpiles reflected the flu, <laughs> right? They looked a lot like 
what we're confronted with annually. And so they were so inadequate for something like this, where there is no vaccine strategy, where there is only a certain segment of the population that is predictably impacted. And therefore, there's no kind of history to draw upon. Um, In this situation, you know, like it's so much harder to be, to think, you know, smartly about risk when it becomes diffuse, you know, like, 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 so, so instead of being the all England club where it's like this two week period that, that you have to protect and, and, or take the step of insurance to kind of mitigate the financial risk, it's so much harder when you're like a retailer and you have like a thousand stores across, you know, a whole bunch of jurisdictions or you're the government and you're trying to prepare for it, particularly when, um, you know, each pandemic has its own dynamics based on how contagious it is, how transmission occurs, who it impacts. Like the 1918 flu impacted children. I often ask myself, what would the world look like today if we were burying children? You know, I, I don't know. I can't predict what that would be, but yeah. it for sure, the psychology of it would be really different. Right? Yeah. And our responses to it would be super different. So, you know, I, I, I'm rambling a little bit here, but like, I just think about those things and how challenging that is. And then it brings me to, so, you know, earlier in this podcast series, I spoke with David Naylor and I asked him, I'm like, what are the coalition of interests or, or what are the mechanisms, you know, to put in place to ensure that, that we maintain our attention span because public inquiries and, you know, commissioning reports they take a, a long time, and then it takes an even longer time to implement um, the recommendations. And actually, it still may not prepare us for the particular pandemic that we find if we think too narrowly about the pandemic we just faced. So I'm not sure what my question is there, but I just threw <laughs> out a lot of stuff, and I, and yep. I invite you to respond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 it's... it's um... It is such an enormously, you know, I shouldn't be glib. The, 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 you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, the All England uh, Lawn and Tennis Club, God bless them, they, had, they have a concentrated problem, which is protected two weeks. And they also had, the mitigation was dead easy, right? All you have to do is you, you buy insurance, you're done. Okay, good. Um, these problems, particularly for governments, are just so much bigger and much more complex and much more difficult. So I, I, I absolutely don't want to be glib about that. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, the fundamental problem, and this isn't just true for governments, it's true for corporations, it's true for everybody, is, again, the psychology. And the fact is, if you, when, when I give my standard lecture on uh, psychology of risk perception, I emphasize, in fact, I say it about 17 times, we don't naturally use science and statistics and logic. We use experience and senses because that's the environment in which our species evolved. We had experience and senses. And that works really, really well for lots of things, particularly in the environment in which we evolved, which we don't live in. Uh, And it doesn't work well at all for other things. And if you think about it, experience and senses, it's terrible for dealing with novel problems, new problems. Well, 
that wasn't a problem for our species throughout most of its history because, of course, it, we didn't have to deal with new things because the environment really didn't change that much, right? The technology didn't change, the environment didn't change, so novelty was not a big problem. Well, novelty is a big problem now, and we are terrible at dealing with novelty. There's an old saying, you know, the old cliche about generals are always fighting the, the last war. Well, it's not just poor old generals who make that mistake. It's literally every human being. Why? Because you're using experience and senses to tell you what to be prepared for. Um, a, a, another simple illustration of this, um, the one that scares the willies out of me, the low probability, high consequence event that scares the willies out of me, geomagnetic storms. Um you know, the, the, the same phenomena that produces the northern lights uh, comes in various scales. And if you have that geomagnetic storm happening at a spectacular scale, it's quite capable of frying electronics the world over. We know this. This is not at all controversial. Uh, so, and in fact, if you go to physicists or engineers, a lot of them will tell you, yeah, this is big and scary and we're completely unprepared for it. You know, our entire world runs on electronics and yet we've done absolutely nothing about being prepared for this low probability, high consequence event. Why is that? Because the last time there was a major geomagnetic storm was in 1860 something or other. Um, and so it's basically inevitable that there will be another, and it probably will do catastrophic damage, and who knows what that will do to our society. And we know all of this, and yet there is zero preparation for it, as far as I can make it. Um, and that's not the only such example, uh, but that's a perfect illustration where science gives us fantastic insight into reality, but it's not informing how we make our collective decisions. What is informing it is plain, old-fashioned human psychology, which is to say experience and senses. And that's dangerous. It's really, really dangerous. And if, if there's one thing I wish people would learn from this experience, uh, and the fact that, you know, we had a we had a pandemic warming warning in 2003 with SARS. We had we had H1N1. We had Ebola. We had Bill Gates giving a TED talk, for goodness sake. We had a Time magazine cover. We had warning after warning after warning. We had it was, a movie. Don't we had the movie. movie. <laughs> it was a movie, for goodness sake. It was Matt Damon. Matt Damon was telling us all along. Uh, so so we had all that. And yet we still got walloped. Uh, this badly, uh, and we were still surprised to such an extent, if that's the case, then what else is out there lurking that we're not so well aware of, that we're still completely unprepared for? It, 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 you know, it, this is not, the issue now is not how do we prepare ourselves for the next pandemic. Um, as I say, I actually think we're going to be pretty prepared, pretty well prepared for that because that's what human beings do. We respond to things that just happen pretty darn well. Um, what I'm worried about is that people are not taking from this the, the, the true lesson, which is that, you know, we don't think about risk very well. And we don't prepare for it very well. And maybe we should think about this a little harder and a little more carefully and put some more resources into it. That's a fabulous point. So I, I could talk to you about this like forever, but I, I, I will try and wrap it up with, with this question. So, so thinking about that, to me, you know, sort, you know, there's this fifth risk, right? Like the unknowable, you know, lower probability, high consequence event. And we want our governments 
to be prepared for that. Part of what I think about is, well, surely part of the solution is in, is in eliminating slack. There's this great book called Meltdown uh, by Clearfield and Tilchuk. And it talks about how the greater the complexity and the closer the coupling, i.e., you know, the more there can be knock-on effects that happen quickly before we notice, um, the greater the chance of a meltdown. Like, that's the meltdown recipe. But we're going to be coming out of this period um, less rich as a nation than we did going into it. So a lot of, you know, there's going to be and, and it's not an unreasonable conversation. There's going to be a whole conversation about, you know, fiscal management and how to be responsible, you know, both in how we, you know, continue to respond to an ongoing event, but how, you know, once we feel like we're on the other side, what are the right impulses? And, you know, I would love to see sort of more investment in Slack or some people call it resilience or, you know, yep. whatever it is. But, but regardless of where you kind of stand on this, you know, on, on the side of this debate, what can we as citizens do when both in terms of how we respond to the steps that politicians take? And if we are talking to political leaders, what should we be saying to political leaders as what should be the most important lessons learned from this event? Wow. Okay. That's, yeah, that's, I, I, I couldn't agree more with all of that. Um, so I guess one way of framing it is this, there are two ways to think about uh, risk and dealing with risks and mitigating risks, bad things that could happen. One is to identify risks. Here is something that could go wrong. Here is how we can mitigate it. Um, it, it is worth the cost. Therefore, let's mitigate it. And that's terrific, and we should be doing lots more of that. But you're absolutely right that no matter how good we become at that, uh, and we're still pretty bad at it, but but no matter how good we become at that, um, uh, we're still going to be shocked by uh, reality. Reality's going to constantly confound us and surprise us and find new ways to uh, upset us. Um, and so what do you want then is you want, as you say, resilience. You want a recognition that we live in a, a reality that is filled with complex adaptive systems, and complex adaptive systems are really, really tough or impossible to predict. Um, and so when the inevitable surprises happen, you can bounce back. Uh, the, the best illustration of this is, well, I mean, there are lots of illustrations of this, but we're seeing one now in the fact that Canada, if you think about where Canada was uh, say in the Great Depression. Imagine this event happening in the Great Depression. We simply would not have had the wealth to support people in the way that we have had. And as a result, people would have suffered that much more. That wealth is a form of resilience. Um, you can see this, by the way, in, in, in earthquakes. If you take an earthquake of a given magnitude and you inflict it on a wealthy developed country, uh, and you say, and you inflict a similar earthquake of a similar magnitude on a poor country, um, the death toll in the poor country will be orders of magnitude greater than they will be in the wealthy developed country. Why is that? Because most deaths in earthquakes happen because the buildings fall down. 
Um, and in the developed country, the buildings are built to a higher standard, and as a result, they stand up. They are more resilient. So one, of the, one way to think about resilience is uh, building up wealth, building up collective wealth, um, uh, so that you can respond well to uh, uh, collective shocks. These discussions about how we deal with big, bad, ugly things that inevitably will happen, if, if we're going to go forward from here, we should not be talking about, again, not be talking about how do we prepare for the next pandemic, although that's an interesting and useful discussion. That should only be one small subset of the larger issue, which is basically how do we prepare ourselves so that we can effectively and equitably respond to uh, the big ugly shock, which will come inevitably. Um, and that's that's a much bigger and much more difficult conversation. But, um, you know, r reality being what it is, the next big ugly shock probably will not be a pandemic. It will be something else. Um, and so we should be prepared for that. Well, I feel a little bit better prepared now that we've talked. So thank you so much, Dan. <laughs> I really appreciated this conversation and uh, and for uh, helping me and hopefully all of our listeners kind of work through what are both, you know, very practical questions, but steeped in our human psychology. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you.